Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, we begin with the latest on the state and local response to coronavirus with Chris Franco. He is a member of the King County Executive's COVID-19 Operations Policy Support Team, and he joins us to talk about the most recent guidelines and recommendations on how to stay healthy and safe, and about how the county is working to help our vulnerable populations and businesses during this challenging time. Then we have a wide-ranging discussion with 36th LD Representative Gail Tarleton, who is currently running for Washington Secretary of State. We talk about her extraordinary background, about the controversy over this year's primary ballot, and about what she'd do to increase voter turnout in the state. That is all ahead, so stay with us. As coronavirus continues to spread here in Washington, we on the show are aiming to bring you as much timely, accurate information as we are able. And so in that spirit, we are very happy to be joined again by our good friend, Chris Franco. He is vice chair of the King County Democrats. He's an active member of Indivisible as well. He's also the director of veterans and military affairs with the Truman National Security Project. And most saliently for our discussion, he is also a member of the King County Executive's COVID-19 operations policy support team. Chris, as always, I, I appreciate you being here, man. Thank you. Appreciate you having me again, brother, and uh, appreciate you working through that mouthful. <laughs> well, you you know, your CV gets longer every time I talk to you, so <laughs> you're an impressive fella. All right, so just briefly tell us about the support team and your role in it. Absolutely. So uh, in response to this this pandemic, uh, King County is really taking seriously how we're responding to it and uh, has put together this COVID-19 operations policy support team, which I've been fortunate to be pulled into. And really what that is, is working with our uh, the county's COVID-19 incident commander and our senior leaders to really work through all the policy needs and issues that will help us respond to this pandemic. Uh, we're really focused on you know, the safety of our residents and employees and trying to figure out, you know, how the heck do we continue to provide vital services and support to the county as, as this evolves and as uh, issues emerge that we just we haven't seen before. I mean, this is an unprecedented time and uh, yeah. so many things are going to need to be addressed. And, and we're really there to support um, the county's leaders, employees and our residents to, to get through this together. Well, we're glad to have you on the job. So the first thing that has been on people's minds is testing. So on Saturday, the FDA announced an emergency authorization of a test that can screen patients substantially faster than existing options. There has also been discussion of drive-through testing sites. Any idea what the scope or time frame is of the expansion of testing within King County? Great question, and obviously a, a very serious concern for a lot of folks. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, this remains a, a challenge. Uh, frankly, we need the federal government to help out in this space. Uh, King County has been working extremely hard to increase testing capacity, but are really limited in those supplies. Uh, and I, I think it's incredibly important to um, to really share with with everybody uh, that if you if you are questioning whether or not you have uh, COVID-19 that um, you contact your healthcare provider. Right. And the guidance right now, because testing is still extremely limited, uh, is to ensure that our at-risk population, so those folks that are over 60, uh, are pregnant or have pre-existing medical conditions, 
be prioritized for testing. And that also includes our first responders and healthcare professionals that are really on the front line of this pandemic. Um, when you when you do contact folks, uh, your healthcare providers in this case, uh, they may want to monitor you and um, they'll really be guiding you on whether or not you need testing. Uh, as of right now, if you're not among that high-risk population, a, a first responder, or you may have just mild symptoms, uh, chances are you are not going to be tested because those those tests are, again, being prioritized for those folks in the front lines and most at risk. And this is information that uh, you can find from the Washington State Department of Health and is, is pushed out and echoed uh, with King County. The caveat here uh, is that if you have been exposed to somebody that has tested positive for COVID-19, that you too would be prioritized to just you know, get a, a an understanding of whether or not you've got it too and, and trying to contain this to the best of our ability. But it's hard to say, unfortunately, in this time uh, when testing will become more robust and available for the general public. Uh, but there are a number of folks throughout our, our region that are really working to get this up and running. I know the UW has a site uh, really, again, geared towards the, the population I mentioned before. Yeah. CVS is working on uh, drive through County is currently as fast as we possibly can trying to get both drive-in sites and walk-in sites for those that may uh, not have the means to go through a drive-through uh, testing facility. Uh, but I've got to imagine here in the next um, few weeks in particular as we're preparing for the surge that we will we will see more testing sites come online, uh, and that is a, a huge priority for the county. Good. Well, that's uh, good news uh, all around, at least in terms of prioritization. And I really hear you on the prioritizing first responders in all this, because, you know, as we know, if infection rates grow at the rate that we're expecting them to, uh, there is going to just be an overwhelming demand on hospitals and staff and, and also equipment. And this has been talked about ad infinitum, but I just can't stress this enough. Let's talk about flattening the curve and what we as citizens citizens can do. First of all, remind us what flattening the curve means. Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you for bringing this up. So flattening the curve is really um, our collective efforts to spread out, uh, well, the spread of this virus and to provide our healthcare system some additional time. Uh, and the way we're doing that right now is encouraging folks to isolate as much as possible to practice that social distancing and good hygiene. Uh, and really what this does is just ensure that we aren't seeing a, a peak of uh, those experiencing COVID-19 all at once, which would overwhelm our medical system. And that's basically what we're seeing in Italy right now. And yeah. the horrific situation that is being faced there is that they are literally having to decide who lives and who dies because they simply don't have the capacity to take care of everyone who is sick all at once. Yeah, and that's a decision that you know no one would ever want to make, particularly our healthcare professionals who who just pour themselves into their work and caring for folks. And yes, that is precisely what we're trying to avoid. It is, and then you know I've got a good friend uh, who's married to my ranger buddy who uh, is on the front lines and uh, in Kirkland and has been just working her tail off uh, trying to help out these folks. And that is the last thing that she and her colleagues would like to do. And this, I mean, gosh, this is this is where really where we need to show up. I mean, our our first responders and our medical professionals uh, professionals are working their asses off. Yeah, uh, I'll be frank there. And if we want to honor their service and sacrifices, we need to heed the medical professionals' advice and share in those sacrifices. And and that really looks like 
you know, again, isolating, practicing good hygiene and uh, social distancing. This is our time to show up. They have been showing up. They will continue to show up and they were working themselves uh, into the ground to save lives. And uh, we're going to continue to see uh, our numbers uh, increase with time and uh, they need all the help they can get. So it's it's up to us to flatten that curve. That's exactly right. And I just want to go down a few other things that both uh, King County Executive Dow Constantine uh, has mentioned, as well as Governor Inslee, of course, social distancing. Uh, Dow uh, mentioned avoiding all unnecessary interactions. He said, assume everyone is infected. That is a very, very tough thing to hear, but I, I think that is one of the most effective things that we can do. We just don't know. Um, he said to treat the next two weeks as self quarantine is that still the timeline as far as you know or is it extended yeah as, as far as i know that's the case uh though we'll obviously have to stay tuned to, to sure. get additional guidance from our, our healthcare professionals and um and do our part and i do want to say actually and commend the uh the executive and also the governor for being out there every single day i mean they're giving these press conferences and just we know this is an uncertain time but seeing leadership at that level um you know, being out there every single day, you know, giving out as much information as they can, I just think is, is just invaluable. Um, something else Dow said that I just want to uh, underline for listeners, he said, donate to the arts and to charities because they're getting hit really, really hard right now. Um, if you have bought a ticket to an event, a concert, uh, something like that, and you, you know, if you if you can afford not to ask for a refund, don't because it'll help our arts organizations that are struggling. This is something, of course, that is very near and dear to my heart. He also said, and I think this is really important too: don't hoard sanitizer or toilet paper. I mean, these are these yes. are the sorts of very basic things that you wouldn't think uh, you would think it would be common sense, uh, and yet here we are. Um, the governor has shut down all bars and entertainment, recreational facilities. Restaurants are limited now to takeout, no gatherings over 50 people. There are statewide school closures. Grocery stores and drug stores are staying open. What right now is the situation with child care centers? Are those staying open? Great question. Uh, yeah, right now, a, a lot of child care centers are staying open. And obviously, those the centers that are choosing to close will do so. Uh, at their own discretion, but this remains one of the uh, the hot topics and great focus areas for you know how do we support our community uh, in these times where so many folks are having to work from home, right. particularly for our first responders and, and medical professionals. Uh, I know that here in Renton, the Renton School District is exploring the possibility of providing childcare for those first responders and medical personnel uh, through the schools. Uh, but that's, again, being explored. And I know this is a hot topic for King County and Washington State to try and figure this out because, I mean, this is a, a significant challenge and uh, a vital service to those that are on the front lines. And uh, I have no doubt that uh, we will we will figure this out and uh, know that this is actively being addressed and worked on. The governor is also asking all people over 60 to shelter in place. And this is in large part because young people won't stop congregating. We've seen just a lot of pushback. And Inslee has tweeted basically that if you are not social distancing at this point, you're potentially killing people. It's stark. How can, in your mind, how do you think we can convince young people to get on board with these measures? 
Great question and a significant challenge in this time. Um, I mean, we've really, we've got to talk to our loved ones, our friends and our coworkers. Um, I mean, even our, if our younger population is not within the high risk population, they're still at risk uh, and can put others at risk. More importantly, in this case, those folks that are in the high risk category, um, we we just we need to have those conversations and we need folks to take this seriously. Yeah. Uh, this is the most crucial time for us to make a long term impact with the actions that we take right now uh, to isolate and practice that social distancing are going to save lives and. Uh, I, I really do hope that um, as we move forward together, that we we see just how serious this is for folks, um, and and that we we have an important role to play, regardless of where we're at in that that high risk population. You know, in the show notes, I'm going to share a Twitter thread by a young man in Italy who talks about having had the same sorts of attitudes that a lot of young people here have right now and watching things uh, transform so dramatically, so frighteningly, uh, it really drives the point home. And so I'm just going to share that on the show notes uh, at indivisiblepodcast.org. If any any listeners feel like they know a young person who could stand to get a, a cold dose of reality, uh, I would really encourage sharing that. I want to shift over and talk about the economic impact on our residents. Now, Trump just signed a coronavirus relief package that's going to provide sick leave, unemployment benefits, free testing, and food and medical aid to people affected by the pandemic. I'm just going to put aside my surprise for a moment that the uh, the GOP, Senate, and Trump got on board with this and just be grateful that that's where we're at right now. Going yeah. at a more granular local level, we have a number of a great number of vulnerable residents here uh, in Washington and King County who are going to be affected by this, but they may be harder to reach, particularly the homeless, the working poor, the elderly. What efforts are being made locally to reach these particular populations? Yes, yes. This is a huge and ongoing focus for King County and something near and dear to my heart. Um, we have folks all over that are tied to these response efforts that are really focused on, you know, how do we reach out to those folks that are, um, you know, have been historically marginalized or at high risk um, and harder to reach. And there are a number of things that uh, have really been going on over the last week. One, one really exciting uh, element is that the King County Council recently approved uh, really a suite of emergency legislation that was proposed by Dow uh, to aid in our response uh, to this outbreak. And part of that includes uh, $1 million for our Office of Equity and Social Justice to provide resources to those that are on the front lines of the outbreak. And, and this that, is your area of expertise, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely uh, tied in with equity and social justice efforts here in King County. So it's really encouraging um, to see this really taking uh, form and, and getting support and that that team, the Office of Equity and Social Justice, has continued to do just amazing work uh, to to do that outreach. And in this case, is offering up grants of up to twenty five thousand dollars to community community based organizations uh, and others that are serving our impacted communities. And uh, we're really trying to prioritize those that are working with communities at the highest risk of immediate and long term negative health, social, and economic impacts with an emphasis on those communities that are going to be located near isolation, quarantine, and recovery sites. Um, in addition to that, you know, we're, we're looking at um, really building out uh, ways that we can connect our residents 
two resources that are available right now. And as of this week, we launched a, a donation management team that is taking in donations of all kinds and trying to get these um, these resources connected to the folks in most need. What sorts of uh, uh, donations are they accepting? Good services, monetary donations. And what we're trying to do is get a, a, a pulse from community leaders and others about, you know, what are the needs, where are the needs greatest, and and kind of pushing them to the front of the line to these um, these resources that are becoming available. And part of that is uh, hopefully here in short order, uh, establishing a, a business line or a line for uh, small business community and our residents to become more aware of the resources that are currently available and will be available as this continues to evolve. Well, I'm going to uh, ask you to follow up with us on that for sure, because I think that's enormously valuable information. So when you get more on that, uh, please let us know. And then also, you did touch on quarantine sites, and I know that this is something that is on a lot of people's minds uh, mm-hmm. for various reasons. And this is something that they're just, it's its a developing situation. But that is something that I think uh, we'd very much appreciate uh, information that you can relay back to us when you get it. Um, I will just close by asking, you had a a really great Facebook post about this, but just what can all of us be doing during this time to help out? You've touched on a lot of things right now, donating, uh, providing child care, Um, just, you know, kind of give us a sense of, of, because I think a lot of people just, we feel, we feel helpless uh, often when situations like this happen and we can't get out into the community. So what are you advising people to do? Yeah, and I appreciate this question because this this really is our time to show up and support one another. I mean, we're all we're all impacted by this, some more than others, and it's wonderful to see how many people are stepping forward in this space. And with that, I'd recommend, again, first and foremost, we've got to do our part to flatten the curve and save lives. Yeah. Uh, that is something that we can all do to help, regardless of what you're doing. And that's, again, isolating, practicing good hygiene and, and social distancing and, and heeding the advice of our healthcare professionals. Uh, I'd encourage folks that have the means to do so, uh, to donate, uh, you know, volunteer, and really try and assist our our first responders and medical professionals, if you can, uh, and those in, of serious need within our communities, predominantly our marginalized, um, historically marginalized communities. Um, support your local businesses. Uh, I can't, you know, express this enough. There are a lot of folks hurt, and you mentioned, you know, the arts. And uh, if you, again, if you have the means, please, please uh, support our our restaurant industry, our arts industry. Uh, or small business community at large, and particularly our, our Asian American businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really encourage folks to to take a stand against the racism and xenophobia and the othering that we're seeing during these challenging times. I mean, it right is now just it's hard enough. It's heartbreaking and infuriating. It really, really it is. is. It is, and we we uh, can show up, and this is our opportunity to to really set the tone for the rest of the nation as the epicenter of this pandemic in North America and the United States of America. And this is our chance. This is our chance to really help one another out and ensure that we come out stronger uh, when all is said and done. We are leading the way, uh, not necessarily because we wanted to, but because we had to. Uh, we were yeah. uh, basically the, the very first case in North America. Um, one of the things that I've been advising people to do is to just check in on, you know, particularly people who might live alone, but also just be a little friendlier and 
ask and, and really, you know, listen to the answer when, when you, you know, ask somebody, how are you doing? You know, I called uh, representatives at both of our senators' offices, and they were on the job. And the first thing that I asked them was, how are you doing? You know, because yeah. it's, it's a really rough time. And, and so before I let you go, Chris, I'm just going to ask you, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, brother. Uh, I'm, I'm encouraged uh, to see just how many people are stepping forward. And it has been wonderful to see all the hard work going on at the county and so many other spaces. And uh, I'm grateful for people like you that are trying to help inform everybody and, and keep folks connected uh, during these challenging times. So I'm, I'm hopeful uh, and I, I appreciate the time with my family right now. I will let you go and spend time with your family. But thank you for your leadership here. Thank you for all the work that you do. And uh, we'll check in with you soon, all right? Sounds good, brother. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, stay safe, everyone. And we got this. Chris Franco is a member of the King County Executive's COVID-19 Operations Policy Support Team. My guest, Gail Tarleton, is a state representative for the 36th District, which includes Magnolia, Ballard, and Queen Anne neighborhoods in Seattle. And she's currently running for Secretary of State. We are so glad that you could join us. As we were saying before we began, these are difficult times. I hope that you are staying uh, safe and healthy right now. Uh, Thanks so much, Stefan, for having me on today. Yes, my husband and I are uh, staying home as much as we can and... uh, spending time with our dog in our yard. Yeah, we're doing much the same thing. Yeah, dogs are <laughs> dogs are great to have around right now. Yeah, for sure. They are. You know, I just got to start by asking you, this has to be a very peculiar experience running for office in the middle of a pandemic. What What is that like, and, and what is your approach to it at this point? You just uh, identified everything that we have been thinking about for uh, the last three weeks when it was apparent to me and the legislature and the governor that we're entering a whole new uh, order of things. And running a campaign while staying in place is about as contrary to my instincts for uh, reaching out to the people as you can possibly get. I am feeling that helping people know who I am and what I have done and why I am running for this really important office at a very critical time. It, it's the hardest thing to think about. And I, I've referred back, Stefan, to what someone asked me uh, last year about the best way to be in communication with their uh, legislator or uh, any other elected official. Uh, what was the best way to contact them. And I, my response was very instinctive. Any way you can listen, you can communicate, you can get a hold of them with whatever way makes you comfortable, whether it's an email or a phone call or a letter, handwritten, or an in-person visit. And right now, we're thinking about all of those ways you can be in contact with the voters and communities without being in person right now. Well, fortunately, we live in an era where more is possible, and uh, I know that we are exploring, uh, on my end, doing a series of uh, town halls, virtual town halls for candidates, and so that's something that I'll just give listeners a heads up to on that. But yeah, it just the, the challenges have to be uh, pretty daunting right now. Um, yeah, it's, and 
it's terrific that you're thinking about connecting to your listeners that way. Uh, you know, as legislators, we do teletown halls uh, at least once a session when we're in session. Uh, I have done them with my seatmates um, every year, but this year, actually, and this year it was because things were happening so fast on the identification of the virus and where the impacts were happening. Uh, it was very difficult to schedule a teletown hall. Uh, I also did a teletown hall with um, as part of my campaign in 2012 when I ran for the oh. state legislature for the first time. And that was a a real eye-opener for me that hundreds to thousands of people can actually call in and ask questions and and not have to show up in person. And I think that that is what is very important right now, is that even though you can't show up in person, the candidate and their team and the communities that they hope to serve uh, can have contact with each other in whatever way is the safest. For sure. And speaking of safety, you are referencing your time with the legislature. Uh, the session just wrapped up. It was a, a short one, a 60-day. And I want to talk about some of the things that got accomplished, particularly around the coronavirus outbreak. But I'm wondering, was there concern in the final days as the coronavirus was starting to really take hold here in the state that you were all gathered together in chambers like that? Yes. Uh, we have an extraordinary situation in the legislature where the chair of our House Health Care Committee is a nurse and a practicing nurse. She still practices, and uh, she has been in the healthcare profession for her entire career. Our vice chair uh, of the Appropriations Committee has been working for King County Public Health for, for years. Uh, so we had some inside perspective on the potential scale of the uh, health emergency that we were entering into, and uh, they, ad both of them advised us to stay in place as much as we could, and in the final 10 days of session, Stefan, uh, we were 98 legislators gathered on the House floor in the legislative building, essentially wow. full-time, you know, 10, 12, sometimes 16 hours a day, and so we were self-quarantining with each other. The assistance for all of us and our interns and the pages, um, we had directed a week before session ended, our health care chair said, I think it's time to tell the legislative assistants to not organize any more meetings with constituents or anyone else, and that they should not be participating in meetings either. So that uh, for about six days, I would say that the the legislative building and the office buildings for the legislators were pretty much um, quarantined. Mm. And and it was not less than 250 people, obviously, in, in, on any given day. But even on sunny day, uh, when usually the public is welcomed and we join together with the Senate uh, to sunny day, uh, we closed the galleries and we closed the rotunda uh, we kept in place inside our respective chambers, and Sani died virtually by uh, video. And so it was a it was a reminder how quickly the situation on the ground was changing for all of our constituents and every community around the state, and that we were doing our very best to end session on time uh, with a budget that was going to help uh, address this immediate crisis and and not get sick ourselves. And, um, 
you know, we probably won't know yet if anyone got sick. Well, I mean, these are such unprecedented times, and obviously we wish all the legislators uh, and senators uh, the the best of health through all of this. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you did on behalf of the coronavirus, combating coronavirus in the state. Um, As we know, the governor has shown extraordinary leadership uh, during this time, as have uh, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, uh, King County Executive Del Constantine. Can you just talk a little bit about how the legislature worked with state and local leadership uh, in that capacity? Yes, this was... uh this was a great example of how bipartisan and uh, bilateral and multi-level uh, governments can actually tackle a problem, because we are, we were constantly getting input from those on the ground in our cities and towns, and so as the information was unfolding about uh, the situation going on in Kirkland at the. Uh, life care um, community, the legislators from that 45th district in Kirkland were immediately in communication with the governor's office, with the uh, mayor of Kirkland, uh, with the mayor of Seattle, and with uh, the King County Executive's office to try to understand what the source of the um, infections were, how many people were potentially affected, how were we going to take care of the first responders. So from even from the very first responses to the evidence that the virus had hit in Snohomish County and then at the Life Care Center, yeah. uh, every level of government was already in constant communication. Uh, the legislators got fully pulled into it when we realized, I'm the House Finance Chair, Uh, The chair of the Appropriations Committee in the House, uh, Tim Ormsby from Spokane, uh, we sat down and said, okay, we have all of these needs for affordable housing and for serving the homeless, and we knew the housing issues for uh, sheltering people who are currently without housing were going to be a key part of handling this public health emergency uh, because public, public health is directly affected by the homeless. And so in the very first phase of the um, draft budgets that came out of the House and the Senate uh, on February 24th, and this gives you a sense of how time can telescope, uh, on February 24th, the House budget had $5 million out of the general fund allocated to address the, uh, the potential consequences of supporting our communities dealing with the virus. And um, within seven days, uh, we were already looking at whether we needed to take $100 million out of the budget stabilization account, better known as the Rainy Rainy Day Day Fund. Fund, And that piece of legislation was introduced almost immediately, and uh, we acted on it in the House, I think, on March 2nd or March 4th. I have lost some track of time uh, in that. I think we all have. (laughs) Period. (laughs) And and we passed it off the House floor with total bipartisan support, sent it over to the Senate um, to be part of the negotiated budget. And by sine die on uh, March 12th, we had already realized that that was just not going to be even close to sufficient. And so a bipartisan negotiated agreement was reached um, to pass an amended uh, piece of legislation that authorized the $200 million uh, level. 
$175 million towards the healthcare uh, community for providing all of the healthcare services as well as the testing and and that level, and then $25 million to the Employment Security Department for dealing with unemployment insurance for workers who were already being furloughed. So within literally from February 24th to March 12th, which I think is about a 17-day period, we saw an evolution, a rapid evolution from thinking it was a a $5 to $10 million issue to a $200 million plus. And, And I had advocated for going up to $300 million in the um, in the budget stabilization account uh, revenue needed because I could see that the federal government was not moving fast enough. Right. They needed to give us more support earlier, and they can't reach an agreement on a bipartisan level and bicameral level. And that, that delay is going to cause real serious consequences around this country. Well, I will just say that, you know— w- People are are sort of flying blind here in terms of how to respond, and due to lack of leadership at the federal level, states have really had to sort of chart their own course. And I will just say on behalf of uh, listeners that we here in Washington are very proud of the way that our legislators and our leaders have responded, yourself included. So uh, I just want to thank you for your work there. And I want to switch over and talk about you personally uh, as we talk about your (laughs) candidacy because you have an extraordinary background. So for people who may not know, you started your career at the Defense Intelligence Agency in D.C. You worked at UW as Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations, and you also worked for a Seattle-based corporation called Science Applications International Corporation. And in that capacity, you were the first woman to address a joint session of Russian Parliament in 1996. Just extraordinary. And then more recently, you served as Port of Seattle Commissioner. And as I say, you are a state rep for the 36th LD. It's it's all just an incredible resume. And I'm wondering, just given your background, why did you, and, and at what point did you choose to shift into politics? That's the question that everyone asks any person who chooses to go into politics, because uh, it's not the norm, as you've probably noticed, Stefan. And uh, and it it takes something extraordinary, whether positive or negative. It takes something extraordinary for uh, anyone to choose public service, and that is why I always honor it. But for me, it was almost exactly when I learned that we were operating torture prisons in Abu Ghraib and other parts of the world that were secret prisons in 2005. And when uh, Hurricane Katrina almost destroyed uh, New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. At a time when we were really seeing failure of government at a a very high level. At so many levels. And it was, you know, it was only a few years after the 9-11 attacks. And and I was an expert in understanding how to deal with existential threats to the United States uh, from potential nuclear catastrophes uh, during the Cold War. And that was what I had focused on for, you know, 10 years of my life. And then I had spent 10 years of my life trying to figure out how we move beyond the Cold War so that there would never be another threat of nuclear war between the United States and Russia. Um, and work to dismantle all of those nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons that we had built up during the period of the Cold War. So here we were, post-9-11, 
and communities were literally being decimated by climate events. Uh, there had been many hurricanes, but Hurricane Katrina just epitomized for me the failure of our leadership at the federal level to pay attention to the destruction that could happen in a community when that local government or that state government was completely overwhelmed with the scale of the calamity that they faced. And the federal government was inept at best, and one could argue so much worse. And so I started thinking, you know, if I can't save the world from nuclear catastrophe, at least I have some expertise. I have some real understanding of what is happening at the local levels where I live. And my mother used to say to me and my six siblings, because we have seven kids in my family, that you do the best you can where you live every day. And I had decided I had done the best I could at the national and international levels. And it was time for me to focus on what I could do where I lived every day for people who live with me. And that was when I really started to um, explore what it would mean to run for office because I was not part of any network. I was not in politics. I was not part of the Democratic establishment. I wasn't I wasn't any way connected to it. Um, I happened to have a friend who was connected into a group called Progressive Majority. And uh, and in 2006, um, the people at Progressive Majority uh, started talking to me about the Port Commission. And I said, what does a Port Commissioner do? (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) I knew the Port of Seattle. I, I had been tracking the Port of Seattle since I had come here because I was involved in global trade and commerce and global economic development and global relationships. And so... I didn't have any idea what the commissioners did, but I knew what the ports did. Right. So, so uh, that was how I got engaged and uh, aware of the fact that port commissioners have a really important responsibility in our communities. And a lot of your listeners may not know, but we are one of the few states in the nation where the public ports are not part of city, uh, county, or state government. We are independent um, entities under the State Port Districts Act, and all 75 of our ports in Washington State are public ports. Well, so uh, the people may not have known uh, what a port commissioner does, and I think the same thing may apply with the position of Secretary of State. Ah, so excellent. I will ask just a very boneheaded question on behalf of listeners. For people who may not be familiar, just give us an overview of what the Secretary of State does. The Secretary of State does more than run elections. Uh, The Secretary of State is actually the third in line for succession um, should the governor or a lieutenant governor be incapacitated or unable to perform their duties uh, per per the Washington State Constitution. And uh, so on a day-to-day basis, since um, we are very fortunate that that situation has never arisen in Washington State's history, to my knowledge. Um, the Secretary of State oversees all elections uh, at the um, county level. So, of course, we have 39 counties, and there are 39 county auditors, or also they are known as local elections directors. And, um, and those county auditors and elections directors run the elections on a, you know, annual basis, all kinds of elections. And then uh, the Secretary of State's also responsible for overseeing um, the legislative uh, archives 
and the state archives and the legislative histories of um, the state. Very importantly, the Secretary of State also registers all businesses, nonprofits, and charities in the state. And so the registration, the access to um, Washington State's uh, economy is all through the licensing and registration that happens at the Secretary of State's office. And uh, I would argue that the Secretary of State should also be the place where we help our our people, all of our residents, understand the extraordinary right to vote in Washington State. And uh, voter engagement, voter participation, voter awareness, and education of all current and future voters uh, should be a key component of any any office holder in the office of the Secretary of State. And and from my own perspective, having lived in Washington State uh, for most of the time since 1990, with a few years where we had to go back to Washington, D.C., uh, I would argue that the Washington State Secretary of State's office has not played a significant or even a visible role in advancing the way in which our people should be aware of and be excited about participating in every single election that they can possibly exercise their right to vote in. Well, let's talk directly about that. Well, what would you do to try to increase uh, voter turnout participation? There is literally not enough education at the county levels or at the uh, Secretary of State's level about all of the ways in which you can participate in exercising your right to vote in the state. I I will offer this context. Uh, Since I have lived in Washington State, I first moved here in 1990, my husband and I, we uh, were one of you know, hundreds of thousands who emigrated into Washington State in the 19, by the late 1980s and through the 1990s, okay? Um, we were five and a half million people in, in 1990, and now we are almost 7.6 million. And most of that growth has been since the end of the recession in 2010 and 2011. So what we are dealing with, Stefan, are people like you and me, except they've come in in the last seven or eight years from states where you had polling places, where you have to register to vote by a party in order to be able to exercise your right to vote, where you have to go to a certain polling place. And so they are not even familiar. All of these newcomers and newly eligible voters, they aren't familiar with the fact that there's a state that makes it easy for you to vote. And so I I had a piece of legislation this past session that was going to fund the uh, county auditors and local elections officials to actually conduct much more substantial voter education and outreach uh, prior to the um, August and November general elections in the uh, state and federal election years, so for state legislative races or for presidential races. And we just weren't able to get that money into the budget this year. If you had been able to, what would that look like ideally to you? Yes. Yeah, so it, it said that the, uh, the auditors could, could get reimbursed for up to 10 percent of the expenses that they incurred to send out uh, voter education pamphlets to contact every voter in their county and and let them know where the ballot boxes were located, to let them know how to fill out a ballot, 
to let them know where to get their signature registered and that they could register to vote on the same day as the election day. Um, all of the information that those of us who have been voting here take for granted, but that newcomers to the state wouldn't have any idea how to access this information, right? Um, and so the voter uh, contact that happens in educating the voter helps the voter prepare for when this ballot comes in their mail, this is what I need to do. You know, I need to make sure I sign it properly. I need to make sure I fill out the ballot properly. Um, I need to know that I have a right that if there is a mistake on my ballot inadvertently, that someone is going to contact me after the election or after they process the ballot and say, you know, this wasn't signed properly or the signature didn't match the address or something like that. And they have an opportunity to fix their ballot in order to have their vote counted. All of these things are in place in our, in our election system today, but I would argue that a whole lot of new voters in our state have no idea. Well, I can actually attest to the fact that existing voters, voters who have lived here uh, for longer than that, weren't really aware either. I was part of a team of canvassers who went out on behalf of the Democratic Party uh, within my precinct to educate voters on this new ballot. Now, of course, ah. this new ballot was uh, it was problematic uh, to some. It was controversial to some. And I want to get your take on it. But yeah. uh, it's largely fallen to the parties uh, right now to to do this sort of work. And so I just, before I get to that question, I'm saying you would want to see that being done by people who are nonpartisan at the state level doing this sort of education. Well, elections professionals. So a lot of people don't really know. Um, the Secretary of State does declare as a party official, okay? When we go on the ballot, we declare our party position. Uh, local elections officials, auditors, in the vast majority of the counties, we have 39 counties, as I mentioned before, probably about 30 to 33 of them are actually uh, declared party uh, candidates. So when they are on the ballot themselves, they have to declare a party. Uh, it's only in the charter counties where it's nonpartisan. And so, like King County, where I live, it's a nonpartisan. And I remember when we went to a nonpartisan um, election official. So. It, throughout the state, what we have are election professionals. So regardless of the party, regardless of what vote they may cast, they do conduct the elections in a professional, responsible, and nonpartisan manner. And so I think for all of us who are trying to make sure our vote is, is properly tallied, that our ballot is counted, uh, that we know that our voice is heard in our democratic process for electing our representative government, that that our elections people are professionals and they right. want to get it right and they are deeply committed to making the system work. Well, let's get your thoughts on this year's presidential primary ballot because, as I said, it was controversial to some. It required people to declare a party affiliation in order to vote. And this was new. Uh, this was the first time we'd done a primary instead of a caucus. So the rules had been right. changed. Can you just briefly explain why uh, people had to declare a party affiliation in order to vote? Sure. So uh, since you were helping uh, explain and educate this to voters at the door, I want to thank you for that. Personally, there should have been a lot more explanation of the entire change to the presidential primary ballot. Uh, out of the Secretary of State's office, 
once we passed that legislation in 2019. So that was passed in, uh, in uh, I think it was late March um, or maybe early April of uh, 2019. We passed Senate Bill 5273, 5273, which laid out the entire um, process for conducting a presidential primary instead of the caucuses. Uh, and I'll just say outright, I have been advocating for the primary uh, since I participated in the caucuses in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and I felt nothing but people being disenfranchised. Mm. Uh, the caucuses were only available to about 4% of the voters for each um, party, and certainly in the Democratic Party. Um, most people can't take four to six to ten hours off from their day on a Saturday sure. to go caucus with their neighbors. And um, and I always viewed the presidential primary as enfranchisement, making access to the ballot available for millions, not just hundreds or a few thousand. And, um, and boy, did this presidential primary voter turnout prove that. Stefan, we have, it's probably going to end up close to 2 million people voting. I was going to ask you for some numbers, yeah, because it, it just got certified, so it's, it's close to 2 million voters. Yeah. That's tremendous. I can see the certification, and I, I just, I mean, close to 2 million people out of the 4.5 million registered voters cast a ballot in the presidential primary, perhaps despite their concerns about doing a preferential uh, party preference. So let's, let's go to that issue. A primary is, this presidential primary is not about seating an elected official. It's not a candidate who is going to take office as a result of the vote, right? It's about nominating a party candidate who will be the standard bearer for that party. And so the legislation that we drafted made it very clear the parties, both parties, in consultation with the Secretary of State's office, would be responsible for ensuring that Democrats were listed in a Democratic side of the ballot and Republicans were listed in a Republican side of the ballot. And, the and this parties, was in compliance with the national parties, unless I'm Exactly. Okay. And, and this legislation made it very clear that the party chairs were the ones who would confirm that the names on their Democratic Party ballot or their Republican Party ballot were, in fact, the names that the party authorized to appear on the ballot, okay? And the legislation stipulated those names had to be provided to the Secretary of State 63 days before the election was conducted. And so all of that was party, Secretary of State, and the state legislature establishing the rules of the road for conducting a presidential primary where a party nominee would earn delegates, right? And it's all about that. It's about how to determine how many delegates the party nominee would get from Washington State. Right. Totally understood. I just want to underscore the reason we had to do it this way to declare our preference when we voted is because we don't declare a party preference when we register. Is that correct? Correct. You are absolutely correct. And nothing about that is changing. When you get your ballot for August elections, you will not have to declare a party preference and certainly not for the general election. 
all names will be on the ballot in the same way they always have, and there will be no party def- declaration. So I want to ask you about uh, current Secretary of State Kim Wyman's response to all of this. She said that she was going to boycott the election because of the requirement that voters declare party affiliation and that that information was on the outside of the ballot for people to see. What was your reaction when you heard her say that? My reaction was, first of all, a secretary of state should never be saying that she is not going to vote. That is almost an implicit recommendation to people to not cast their vote. And that, to me, is close to voter suppression. Uh, but secondly, my, my immediate <laughs> second reaction was, I wonder why it appeared on the outside of the ballot, because I figured perhaps something in the legislation had directed that, uh, had stipulated that it had to be in a certain location, because we do a lot of very specific stuff in legislation. And since I am a lawmaker, and I did vote for that uh, presidential primary vote, I wanted to make sure what the legislation actually directed to the Secretary of State. Okay. And, um, and this was the answer I got. The answer was that the legislature said that, and the parties said, that there had to be a party preference declared, but it did not stipulate where on the ballot it appeared. It gave rulemaking authority to the Secretary of State to determine the ballot design and the location of the party preference. So in other words, she was boycotting a process that she herself had a hand in. Correct. And furthermore, I had an auditor tell me, because I I said to the auditors, is this how you interpreted the responsibility to put the, to see the declaration on the outside of the, um, the return envelope? And they said, yes, it was by rulemaking, by the Secretary of State, per the legislation. And now that she, she first said she was not going to vote, she was going to boycott it. And then three days later, she said, I am going to cast my vote, but I am not going to declare the party preference which will make my vote not valid. And uh, so I I went to a couple of auditors and I said, but don't you, when you're processing the ballot, if you see something that potentially could make a ballot in, invalid, that you give an opportunity to the voter to correct their ballot. To It's called ballot curing. Yeah. Uh, for example, if they saw a signature that was illegible or that didn't get scanned properly and couldn't verify that that was the signature of the voter. And so the auditor said, yes, we would have to, uh, would get the ballot from the secretary, would see that no party preference was declared. And so we would have to treat that as a potential ballot for curing. And so we would have to send a notice to anyone who did not declare a party preference, letting them know that if they don't declare one, they're their vote is not valid, so would they like an opportunity to reconsider? Well, we do know that there were apparently tens of thousands of ballots that went uncounted because of uh, people filling them out wrong and then not taking the opportunity to cure them. And I will just ask you, as Secretary of State, let's just start from the very beginning. How would you handle this balloting process differently? Well, it's it's a great question because it goes to the heart of the way you lead. I have always felt that the people on the ground, in this case the auditors uh, who are running the elections teams, ought to have an opportunity to have a say in any kind of process or decision which affects their ability to do their job. And so 
when the Secretary of State is given the rulemaking authority uh, to determine the location and design of the ballot, my first instinct would be bring in representatives from the largest counties, the medium-sized counties, and the smallest counties, and ask their opinion. <laughs> you know, where given that this is the first time ever that we are declaring a party preference on the ballot, what is the best location for it to appear so that you can process it, know that you are processing a ballot that is filling out the ballot for the appropriate, you know, candidate, whether it's a Democratic or Republican um, candidate, and what are the options? We could have put it on an inside security envelope, for example. Could we have put it on the ballot itself at the top of the column where you are selecting a Democrat versus a Republican? Could we have put it on the inside flap of the outside envelope so that it was not visible? I mean, those are basic questions. I will just ask you candidly, since I would understand it to be your decision, if it were left to you, would you leave the party declaration on the outside of the ballot or would you put it in a more hidden place? I would I would put it in a um, in a in an alternative location okay. because especially especially because I am concerned that people think this is now the new design for every election and every ballot going forward, and you never want people to conclude that we're changing the entire system of voting where they are going to have to declare a party before they get to cast their ballot. Understood. So ask for more input from those on the ground and then explore options as to where to put that party declaration. So I will just ask you one final question, and that is, uh, if elected, you would be the first Democratic Party-affiliated Secretary of State to hold the office since 1965. Um, People seem to see this office as a balance point in Olympia. And I'm wondering how you address that argument and potentially break that streak. I like to think that the challenges facing our democracy and the integrity of our elections and the potential risks from foreign or domestic interference and and the and the worries that our ballots are in some way uh, at risk of not being legitimate and our elections are not being legitimate is a really good reason to change the way the status quo works. And right now, it's not about necessarily my being the first Democrat in 65 years. It's about the fact that we are in an era where where whole states are canceling their elections, where our Secretary of State just called for the cancellation of the April special elections that are happening at county levels. When do we ever have a democracy where elections officials or elected leaders call for the cancellation of an election? We cannot have that happen. And that is why we need a change, because people who are in positions for too long become too comfortable about thinking that that's the way it was always done, so that's the way it should always be, if there were ever a time where the people of Washington State who are innovative and who like to think about changing the way they do their work and their jobs, how they survive a public health emergency like this, if there were ever a time where we said our elections are more important than ever, this is the time to take a vote and change the way the system has worked. And I will do everything in my power to give people an opportunity to have that say. I couldn't agree more, and I'm grateful you're running, and I will just say thank you, uh, Representative Gail Tarleton. I I wish you the best. Thank you very much, Stefan, and uh, stay safe. 
So I just want to pop in with one last quick word here. I know a lot of us are really struggling right now. I mean, I am, and I'm an introvert who works from home. But, you know, as listeners know, I also suffer from anxiety and depression, both of which have been really cropping up for me. And I'm hearing from listeners that that is absolutely the case for you as well. And really, how could it not be right now? I mean, even if you don't deal with those things regularly, this is a situation that is just so unprecedented. It's so surreal. And God, at the federal level, it's being handled with such breathtaking ineptitude that it is, it, it's hard to just get your bearings, you know? I, I wake up a lot of mornings and I think, is this still happening still? Really? Well, actually, I've, I've been feeling that way pretty much every morning since Trump was elected. But there is some good news. First, our state and local governments are stepping up in a big way. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Governor Inslee, to Dow Constantine, to our public health officials, to our healthcare workers out there on the front lines, to our incredible scientists and innovators who are just all stepping up to the challenge. As I was saying to Chris Franco earlier, we did not choose to be first here, but I am so proud of how we as a community and as a state have led the way. The other good news is, well, social media and video conferencing, right? Technology is not always our friend, but those particular aspects really are right now. They're helping us feel less isolated. I had drinks with some invisible friends the other night. Uh, I also watched a comedy special with friends. Uh, I just saw there's a way to do karaoke online with your friends. Uh, and if you've ever heard me on this show and I'm hoarse, nine times out of ten, it's because I've been doing karaoke the night before. So anyway, it is important for us to do this kind of stuff right now, I think. And it is especially, especially important to check in on people who live alone or who may be living with people that, for whatever reason, they don't get along with. We really have to hold each other up right now. And I know that we will. I will let you know that I'm going to be doing a live show next week with our friend, Indivisible Leader, and trauma therapist Jennifer Young. She's going to be on hand to hear your questions about pretty much anything that you're going through. This is going to be on Wednesday, March 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific. I will have the WebEx link for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. Please join us if you can. It would be great to have you there. And really, you know, reach out anytime. I love to hear from listeners, and especially right now. Please know that you are not alone. We will get through this. And even if it's by our phones and pads and laptops, we will get through it together. And that'll do it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at Demcast USA. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>